0: Welcome to Pastor Potluck. I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. And we don't sound the same as we usually do. My, my voice is probably about the same, but I just cough a lot. And Peter has very little voice, so that's unfortunate since he's going to be doing most of the talking today. I'll try to make it through. Last week we talked about my trip to Colorado. And today we're going to talk about Peter's much, much longer distance and time, I believe, trip that he took to Armenia. So Peter, if you would like
1: to uh, talk about what we're gonna talk about, then that'd be great. So Armenia is in its current form uh, a, a country located in the Caucasus mountain region, which separates, that Caucasus mountain range separates um, mid, the Middle East from Europe. And it is located between the Black Sea in the Caspian Sea. Does that make it Eurasian? Well, that's the question. Is it a Middle Eastern country? Is it a European country? Is it an Asian country? It's up for debate, even among Armenians. Okay. It's kind of, if you were to draw a Venn diagram with Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, it's right in the middle. Armenians sound
0: like Baptists to me. Everything's argued constantly.
1: Yeah, well, and that's another thing we should clarify. We're talking about Armenians, the ethnic people, not followers of Jacobus Arminius mm-hmm. who was an uh, interlocutor with Jean Calvin, John Calvin. And the two of them their followers exactly. Became Baptists. Right. Yeah. So uh, so Armenians, the ethnic people, have very little to do with Jacobus Arminius. They are in fact a Orthodox church by and large. Armenia was noted as the first national church, or na- nations at the time, 301 AD, mm-hmm. were just ethnic groups from the Greek word ethnos, meaning nation or eth- or ethnicity. And there's an interesting story of the uh, conversion of those people, and we'll talk about that a little later. But now that you have some geographic context, I wanted to also share some of my personal story. Uh, You may wonder, Peter, if they're Orthodox, why are you Methodist? That's a good question. Well, I'm Methodist mostly because I grew up in the Methodist church with my mom. Okay. But my dad and his family, who are Armenian, actually were Presbyterian for at least two generations. I think a lot of that comes
0: from the fact that as people were migrating to the United States,
1: there weren't that many Orthodox options. Correct. Yeah. And, And here's another one. This is... Something I had to do research on back in divinity school. I had to connect my personal story and my family story with the story of the development of American Christianity. Mm-hmm. So uh, put on your uh, American Christianity historical hat for, for a little bit. I never take it off. Good. And rewind to, I think, the 17 and 1800s. You've got intense competition between Protestant denominations in the United States and the way that they're competing for new members is by building hospitals and schools. Orphanages. And we still have hospitals and schools and orphanages that are named after. Uh, St. Joe's, Mission. Mm-hmm, <laughs> the Methodist Children's Home. Um, Baptist it, Children's Home. Exactly. Well, at the same time, and I don't like to I don't want to use this word because it sounds negative, but uh, the competition between Protestant churches in the in America sort of metastasized. That does sound negative. But and it spread. That's what I mean. It spread into international missions. Mm-hmm. So the Presbyterians sent a missionary group first to Lebanon, to Beirut, with the goal of converting Muslims. Mm-hmm. It didn't really work out, and the mission field decided that they would relocate these missionaries to Istanbul to try to convert Turkish Muslims. Mm -hmm. That didn't work out either but they used the same method that they were using in the United States meaning they built hospitals and they built schools and at that time uh, they were there were outside of the city of Istanbul a lot of different ethnic groups including Armenian Orthodox Christians who were generally poor they were second-class citizens in the Ottoman Empire second class to the Muslim second class to Muslim and Turkish population uh, people yes and and so when they heard you're Christians and you want to give us free health care and education uh, we'll sign up yeah so the first thing that these good Presbyterian missionaries did was they said what language are you speaking oh we're speaking Armenian but it turned out that they they had so much influence in their their language with Turkish they were actually speaking what linguists would call Armeno-Turkic, which is kind of like when you hear people talk about Spanglish in America. Exactly. So these Presbyterians said, "Great, we'll print a Bible for you in armeno Well, because of the ethnic tensions between Turks and Armenians, even though these poor Armenians had their own Bible, now were doing their own Bible studies in a language that they understood. Once the Armenian Apostolic or Orthodox Church found out that they're doing Bible studies without a priest, in a with an armeno Bible, they're like, "Oh no!" And we they can't have alter, uh,
0: autonomy of the local church or a priesthood of believers. We can't have that. We
1: cannot have that. This <laughs> is now you gotta remember, like the Orthodox Christianity has some rules, and uh, so they this group got excommunicated, mm-hmm. and my family was both in. In Istanbul area, which w- which was Constantinople, now it's Istanbul. Yeah, it's a song, not Constantinople. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in the southern area of of modern day Turkey, on the border between Turkey and Syria, a, a, a city called Kilis, which if you go back in time was called Cilicia, and before that, Cilicia, and then you start to hear, oh, that's where Paul was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Uh, they were these m- missionaries had spread and had. Uh, infiltrated Armenian communities in those areas and so when the genocide started in 1915 against ethnic minorities in the collapsing so uh collapsing uh, collapsing ottoman empire a lot of armenians became uh refugees including my family members and when they landed in new york they found an armenian community which was a protestant community that was very much aligned with the same presbyterian publishing house that had printed those Bibles for them. And my dad actually has one of these Armenian-Turkic Bibles oh, wow. still. Can y'all read it? Well, that's the thing. He didn't <laughs> learn a lot of Armenian from his parents because they really wanted him to assimilate into, into American culture. We see that country. a
0: lot with, again, with Hispanic families here as well.
1: Yeah, to try to give their children a leg up. They try to keep from teaching them the old language. They want them to be fluent in English. They want them to go to baseball camp. Uh, Etc. So he's got this Bible and later in life he went to do some tutoring in Armenian and he brought his Bible and he said, why can't I read this? And the Armenian tutor looked at it like, this is not Armenian. <laughs> this is Armeno-Turkic." Yeah. Uh, so we have the Bible, but we can't read it. So um, I guess
0: cat's out of the bag. You're related to people in Armenia.
1: Yes, I am half Armenian. You haven't said that yet. My dad's full Armenian. My grandparents are full Armenian. They were born in the United States, but because of that insular community of Armenians and diaspora, Armenian refugees, they st- kind of stuck to their own. It was my great grandparents who, who emigrated from uh, the area that is now known as Turkey to uh, n- New York and New Jersey. So I'm pretty, as a fourth generation refugee, I'm pretty disconnected from my roots in Armenia. And so it was important for me to go on this trip This is my second time to Armenia, but my first time traveling as a representative of the Methodist Church to visit a mission that we've, I guess, been supporting, the Methodist Church has been supporting in Armenia for the past 30 years. All right, so uh, (coughs) since you
0: have sort of made a shift from what is Armenia and how are you connected to it hereditarily to... Um, what's the church doing there and this thing that you did which we'll get into i want to interject with the bible because if you've been listening to peter's story and his valuable insight into the history and the cultures involved and what i find fascinating that they had a church a christian church there before the edict of milan which none of our listeners care about but well, what was it, the Edict of Law? That's when Rome says we're a Christian empire now. Exactly. Yeah. And until then, most of Christianity was somewhat underground. Mm-hmm. Persecuted. Uh, exactly. And so they had a, a foothold there before the rest of the world I guess, went Christian, mm-hmm. known world to them, world before, that mattered Before it became
1: acceptable to be yeah. Christian in the Roman Empire. And now.
0: then hmm. what do we see being sent to them? Missionaries from other places when they had the Christianity first. And so we see this movement of the gospel. And so I want to interject with a passage from Acts 8. And that will also give you a chance, uh, you a chance to rest your voice. Thank your you. ailing voice. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to read this, and a lot of it, I mean, there there are two main sections that we're going to talk about, but there's some other stuff that may be, you know, not really apropos to our conversation, but I'm going to read it anyway. Acts 8, 1 through 8. And Saul approved their killing him, which is a sentence that really belonged in the chapter ahead. That's when they stoned Stephen. That day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. This is verse 4. Now those who were scattered... Went from place to place proclaiming the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds, with one accord, listened eagerly to what was said by Philip, hearing and seeing the signs that he did. For un- unclean spirits, crying with loud shrieks, came out of many who were possessed, and many others who were paralyzed or lame were cured. So there was great joy in that city. And it goes on, and there's more biblical characters who follow the pattern of Philip being scattered but taking with them the spirit because it was just all over them. They were to be a Baptist, immersed in it. Mm -hmm. And people saw it. And as they went them taking with them the joy of their, be it newfound or established, belief in this really new at the time, movement and understanding and now we call it a religion others wanted that too and so they they took it with them and instead of stamping out this movement which is what Paul and the gang intended to do by persecuting them, they spread it. It's like I, I use the illusion, not the illusion, I use the image often of if you were to Spill grape juice on a white carpet. Hmm. If you go and try to wipe it up, like with a motion that moves across it, you're actually going to make the stain worse Hmm. versus if you sop it up, absorb it, Hmm. which would be different. And so, in Jesus
1: is a biscuit, let him sop you up. I've never heard this
0: before. (laughs) I'm interested in it, but. Did you just create this? Did no, no, complete? no. Okay. That's a,
1: that's a reference. That's a deep. That's a deep cut right there. All right. Well, anyway,
0: if if in their trying to wipe out, mm-hmm. and wipe out the the movement that Jesus had left with the apostles, they actually ended up spreading it mm-hmm. because it was something that traveled with people. It was something that could not be contained. Yeah. At, when you scatter people, and as you were telling your story, I kept thinking in my mind which I probably shouldn't have but did that missions done the way they were done especially in the 1700s and and such time periods tended to follow the pattern of imperialism Hmm. and imperialization it was it was more advanced eh, I don't even want to say that but more powerful cultures exporting their way of life with it, their religion yeah, and taking it to places and we still see that today. Yeah. I shouldn't say this but I'm going to I cringe when we do the shoe boxes because mm. it's like we're exporting American knickknacks. Well knickknacks yes but also uh, the hope that people will get these boxes and be more like us. I mean even even the concept of Giving stuff for christmas we didn't invent it but it's certainly driven more here than i think anywhere else yeah and so i kind of cringe with that but if you look at imperialism if you look at oppression and if you look at efforts that are made to with force establish or remove The presence of God in people's lives, what you see over and over again is in whatever way, and I saw this with the hospitals and schools that you were talking about, in whatever ways when the work of the gospel is being done, not necessarily when the speeches of the gospel are being pronounced, but when the work of the gospel is being done, it makes an impact and a lasting Mm -hmm. one. So now might be a good time to talk about what the Methodist Church or maybe even other churches are doing in this, this thing that you experience.
1: Well, so I was uh, on mission in a way to sort of check in and get to know the project that we've been supporting for the past we? over 30 years. I traveled with our conference disaster relief coordinator, Brian Matier, who's also over in some way missions and is a new member of the board of the project we have there, which is called Project Agape and three other pastors who have either a long-term history or a very short-term history with Project Agape from either the Western or the Eastern North Carolina Methodist Conference. Um, A couple things to note about the project from the beginning, which was pretty much from the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah, you said 30 years, and it's been, (laughs) I think, 31 or 32,
0: something like that. Since the Soviet Union fell,
1: and that's that's intentional. I mean, that's that's the reason for the start of this project. Apparently, there was some sort of conference in Moscow at the when when the Soviet Union collapsed, where members of different Soviet states or former Soviet states gathered with Western um, nonprofits and missionary groups who are interested in doing um, works of service to help develop these countries and help sort of like get them into the global economy which we call which is also known as capitalism which is sort of the new empire that was replacing the Soviet empire Uh, and a group of clergy from the western North Carolina and eastern North Carolina conference the Methodist Church just happened to meet with some Armenians and and got an invite from the Armenian Apostolic Church to come and take a look at what they're doing in Armenia. So it's ecumenical. Exactly from the beginning it's been a partnership so when I say the word mission Uh, we have to understand that at least in this case, it's not a proselytizing mission. It's more of a humanitarian aid kind of mission. Okay. The other thing that you will be interested and perhaps appalled to find out is that a lot of the work that we do is Christmas boxes. (laughs) Or at least that has been sort of an entry-level point for most of our churches back here to give them some kind of connection. There's more work that's being done. It has a very small budget in terms of um, you know, the, the monetary support that, that we give to the project, but they've been able to do a lot with that. So in addition to Christmas boxes, they were supporting an orphanage. They had a Christian education center where they're teaching IT skills and, um, and other hands-on career-building skills. Uh, and so, you know, I learned a little bit more about that when I was there. I want to go back, though, to, to making a connection with the Book of Acts. Because I think as Protestants, there's two things that we kind of struggle with uh, that older denominations uh, have a better understanding of. And those two things are the history of the early church after the book of Acts concludes. Mm -hmm. Like what happened after Acts is over between then and say 1500, where we start to hear about the Reformation and we have a little bit more familiarity with the development of, for example, the the Baptists, the Anabaptists, uh, the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Puritans, all of that kind of, we have like a good understanding of that, and we have a good understanding of Acts, but that stuff in the middle is a little fuzzy.
0: Yeah, yeah, you got to really learn your Catholic
1: history. Yeah. yeah, which is a which is a barrier for a lot of Protestants. I don't want to study that. Yeah, but it's important because. That's where a lot of what it means to be a Christian got really sorted out. There were, there were heresies, people who were um, trying to figure out what, what Christ's life, death, and resurrection meant. But they m- made some error along the way and ended up leading people astray. And then they had to have an ecumenical council, bring all of the bishops together and talk about this and make decisions. And eventually you know, rule some people to be in the wrong and
0: Which is where
1: Baptists
0: we get creeds. Got it. Yeah, and Baptists don't believe in creeds,
1: right? Well, those, unless it suits them. And and the thing is, those creeds were were hugely important at the time, and they don't seem to matter so much today. But we should also acknowledge that we're coming up with our own creeds all the time, and you see them on people's bumper stickers and road signs. You know, if you if you see when you're driving by and someone's got a sign in front of their house that says, um, "We we stand for the flag, we kneel for the cross." That's a form Jesus of a Christ creed. Jesus Christ
0: is Lord of Haywood County.
1: Yes, yeah. that's a form of a creed. That's saying <laughs> everybody who is like me believes these statements. Yeah. Another. If you want to take the other side of the political spectrum, you might see a sign that says, "Love is love." Uh, I forgot what all the signs say exactly. Uh, Diversity. Coexist. Coexist. Black Lives Matter. And and sometimes they put them all on one sign. Well, that's, that's a rudimentary form of a creed.
0: Yeah, it's saying if you don't... And this is... I guess it's on one hand showing that we've always been like this, but on the other hand showing... Just how tribal we are becoming now. Mm -hmm. It's and the creeds have been used this way, and often are. But so are these slogans and stickers. It's if you don't believe the things that I believe, you have no place here. You're out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's defining ourselves by what we aren't.
1: Yeah, and honestly, that is um, a large part of how we can explain how the creeds emerged. But they were helpful in terms of forming the orthodox beliefs of the church. And a lot of those uh, ecumenical councils happened in that time window that's kind of fuzzy to most Protestants. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we don't consider much of in Protestant Christianity is the importance of relics. Sometimes you hear people talk about the Shroud of Turin, Mm -hmm. which is a piece of cloth that apparently was laid over Jesus' body, and that's where we get the, the sort of bearded image of Christ's face that has been then transformed into many depictions of him. Uh, there are other mentions of relics in scripture that we kind of gloss over because it doesn't mean the Ark of the Covenant the Ark of the Covenant for example but you'll see that the scripture will will focus in detail on that artifact whatever it is and John 19 is a good example when they talk about this this spear that the uh, Roman soldier used to pierce the side of Christ and then reference scriptures in the Old Testament that make reference to the one, they will see the one pierced and blood and water will flow from him that kind of thing Uh, those are oftentimes there to help explain the existence of certain relics that the Christian community was carrying with them. Okay so I say all that because to connect the story of the Armenian Church with uh, Acts, yes. Do you want me to read? Yeah, read it for us. Uh, John 19,
0: <coughs> beginning in 31. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because the Sabbath that Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, did I read the wrong one? No, that's it right. keep going. Okay. They saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. Parentheses. He who saw this has testified so that you may also that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, so that you may you also may continue to believe. Unparenthesis. These things occur so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And again, another pra- passage of scripture says they will look on the one whom they have pierced.
1: Yeah. So you wonder, I mean, now that I'm saying this, you might be like, oh, I don't know why I missed that. Yeah. But like how many verses there are dedicated to explaining that this spear pierced Christ's side, and that the one who testified about it is telling the truth because he was there and that the scriptures confirm that this had to happen yeah my my theory is and this is something that I I'm not just coming up on my own but I've received this from my christian education is that these relics like the spearhead that pierced Christ's side were in circulation with those christians who were scattered or at least and let me let me
0: let me add this a relic doesn't have to be scientifically proven to be that actual historical item Mm -hmm. if there is an object that is believed to be a historical item and that inspires faith let me start over and that inspires faith then its usefulness as a
1: relic is valid Mm absolutely absolutely and so in Acts, we see the scattering of the disciples. It says the apostles remained in Jerusalem, but eventually they also followed the path of the great commandment, which Jesus gave, the great commission rather, to go into Jerusalem, Jerusalem Samaria, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Yeah. Right. And when I was in Armenia, I was able to visit a number of sites where there are churches that are built uh, to... Remind Armenian Christians of that ancient history. Have you been to the Holy Land?
0: I have been to the Holy same Land. Same thing. There's a church on every corner, and it's all it's always built on something.
1: There's some relic buried under the altar, yeah. or the body of a saint. Right? Yeah. So in Armenia, it's the same way. There's a church in the back of a valley that is built up against the side of a cliff, because when the Christians were under persecution. Uh, the the early converts to Christianity before the edict of Milan, they actually took a residence in these caves to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. This monastery is now called Gegard Monastery and Gegard means spear. And the story goes that Thaddeus and Bartholomew, two of the apostles, actually traveled to Armenia and carried with them the spearhead that pierced the side of Christ and they used this as a teaching object To bring converts to Christianity so how did they is that
0: and you may not feel like this is worth discussing and that's fine but what was the argument that they made using this object was it because
1: we have this you know that Christ was indeed crucified I think you know if you take the spearhead along with for example a copy of the Gospel of John And you read it through, and then in chapter 19, you get to a reference about this person, Jesus Christ, that you've come to know through this story. And then you say, look, and here is the spear Mm -hmm. that pierced his side. All of a sudden, instead of it being a distant story from a distant time and place, there's something tangible right there in front of you for people to believe. And to say that these people who had come to believe in Christ— We're facing persecution. So their examples of how Jesus faced persecution uh, that that scripture carried were immediately relevant to them. So as a modern day pilgrim, Mm -hmm.
0: what does being around that, that place, hearing those stories, what does that do to you now? Um, Maybe even encountering the item. But what does that do to you experientially and in your faith now as you explain it to someone who hasn't had that experience
1: well I think I would um, I would actually reference my father's faith journey uh, he, he was in college and he was mo- he, he sort of had a you know loss of faith or a faith crisis experience as many of us go through and eventually did have the opportunity to travel abroad he, he he lived in Germany for a bit and went to Armenia and going to these holy sites and recognizing that it wasn't just Christ and the disciples who suffered but the Armenian people after they um, after they claimed Christianity as their own suffered immensely for having uh, having held on to these beliefs he decided Wow, if, if, they, if my people, and now we can say either Armenians or just Christians in general, died, were willing to die to stay Christian, then maybe I deserve to give it a second chance. So that is
0: powerful and partially to me because it reminds me so much of both the situation into which it was written and the revelation. So, the book of Revelation, John's Revelation, whatever you want to call it, how you have these fledgling <coughs> churches that are struggling and seem to be dying on the vine, mm-hmm. and John is writing to them and sharing this revelation he's had, and so much of it is about just hang on. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you are suffering. Mm-hmm. And it's going to get worse. Mm. But, and the but almost always, well, there's, there's, there's two possibilities for the but, and sometimes they're in conjunction. Like, you get both possibilities in one but. So you're suffering, you're being persecuted, you want to give up, but, and John will show this glorious throne room with all these martyrs mm-hmm. that have gone before them. Mm-hmm. And so one argument is, well, why should I continue to be faithful because look what happened to Frank. Hmm. And John's argument, but look at Frank now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and, but the other side of the butt is God's going to act. Yes. And so sometimes looking at the way people have gone before us and suffered and maintained their faith gives us strength. And it also points to the promise that the god in whom they believed and one would assume still do is going to act and to make this right so as we've seen this community's faith journey play out you know their history a lot better than i do how have they seen or maybe they shared it with you i don't know
1: Hmm. how have they seen god act Hmm. well um one thing that really sticks with me about the experience of Armenian Christians uh, is that somehow, whereas other churches, like for example, Christians in in Europe, eventually became conquering, mm-hmm. uh, reli- eventually became a co- conquering religion or a, a, a colonizing. It doesn't religion. take long
0: once, a, once a, a whole nation embraces a religious movement for that religion to get an army. Right. Like what happened with the Lutherans in
1: Germany. Right. Or Rome. You yeah. know, I mean, the Edict of Milan, which you mentioned, I mean, what, what um, Emperor Constantine saw was uh, conquer with this. Yeah. And right? If we win, we'll be Christians. Yeah. Right. Whereas the Armenians, for some reason never really decided to go off on the whole conquest campaign. Instead, they've suffered conquest after conquest after conquest. I mean, the the list is is I mean you can you can probably you can probably can't count it on two hands. You've got uh you've got the Persian Empire, you've got the Seleucid and Mamluk Empires from Egypt, you've got the Turks or the Mongols coming across the steppe. You've got the Greeks and the and the Romans who showed up to conquer and then later you've got the Soviet or the Ottomans rather then you've got the Soviet Empire and now you've got global commerce mm-hmm. and so our, our project director uh, amusingly said Armenians are probably the only people in the world who have clean minds because we've been brainwashed so many times <laughs> They brainwash one way, and then the next group comes in. They're brainwashed again. But that's what,
0: that's what we do. We conquer the people, and then we conquer the culture. Yeah. But the beauty of it is, and maybe Armenian Christianity has been a way of them doing this. And I guess that'd be the Orthodox branch. But they've been able to, through all of this, trying to conquer their culture, they've been able to hold on to it. Mm-hmm. We hear a lot, a lot when in Paul's writing about a
1: remnant, mm-hmm.
0: and it's talking about from the Jewish faith, but perhaps that's how they've been able to maintain a remnant.
1: Yeah. And so to me, this trip was really powerful because uh, not just because I'm Armenian, but because I'm a Christian and to know that other Christians in the world have been holding on to this faith for millennia, Mm -hmm. even when they weren't in power. I mean, they were always on the fringes, on the margins of empire and experiencing the oppression of group after group after group and yet have held on to this faith as like their one unifying uh, identity marker I think there's a lot of hope in that And as I think about the church in America and
0: the current state of it and what looks like might be the future state of it I feel like American Christians don't know how we can be faithful if we aren't the dominant faith Hmm. and you know, you hear about the the rise of the nuns mm. all the time, right. people that just don't have a named faith, and how that's growing in America. And we wring our hands and we think, well, there can't be a future of the church if we are not the biggest voting block or the whatever. Mm. And that's not true. It's not true. And the church in China, the church in Armenia, Armenia. The church, um, in, in a lot of places where it's been oppressed, I mean, any Warsaw Pact nation, mm-hmm. um, it, it proof mm-hmm. that as long as there's a God, there's a church. Right. And if you believe in an eternal
1: God, then that means that the church, too, is eternal. And the story of Jesus becomes so much more real and powerful when you yourself are experiencing oppression or persecution. Uh, because I mean, he went through it, mm-hmm. right? And he and he came to show us that, you know, even if you live the most holy life, people will come to hate you. In Hebrews, there's, I want to say it's Hebrews two. There's this this description of
0: Jesus that almost, <coughs> and I'm sure someone's made the argument that it is, but it almost seems sac- sacrilegious, where it talks about how Jesus is our brother. Hmm. Um, how we are Jesus' brothers and sisters and you can say oh how dare you lower Jesus to be one of us but the beauty of that is that Jesus in full humanity understands what it's like to be a human Mm -hmm. persecution suffering a bad breakup I don't know but Jesus has been human enough to understand that
1: yeah absolutely so I want to talk a little bit about this project that I went to visit uh, in more detail like so uh after the soviet union collapsed there was sort of an arbitrary process of drawing borders for these former soviet states and a section of what is historically armenia was granted to azerbaijan which is the neighboring country which is a ethnically turkish group of people Mm -hmm. and we'll remember that it was turkish people who uh who perpetuated the genocide against Armenians at the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Okay. So there's no love there mm-hmm. and in fact 80 percent of Armenians, um, Armenia's borders are closed because to the west they have Turkey and to the right they have Azerbaijan and because there hasn't been any acknowledgement or attempts at reconciliation uh, th- those borders are going to remain closed. Those, those people are going to remain enemies. You know I do believe that that you know as scripture tells us that one day We will all stand before the throne of God. We will all be united as one. But oftentimes in conflicts like this, it's difficult to see exactly how that will happen. But right after the collapse of the Soviet Union, based on these arbitrary maps that some might say were kind of drawn in cynical ways Mm -hmm. uh, by those in power in order to destabilize the region. When you say in cynical ways, do you mean uh, those who were
0: drawing up the, the borders figured, well, they're never going to get along. We might as well lock them up, not like in prison, but, you know, separate them.
1: Yeah, kind of like that, except instead of separating them along sort of lines that were understood by the people living there to represent their territory, they would give a chunk that they gave a chunk of what Armenians knew to be theirs to Azerbaijan and gave a chunk of what Azeris knew to be theirs to Armenia and they did this across the, all of the Soviet bloc. That block. is the
0: classic European colonization method because the ones with the numbers keep the ones with the money and guns in control.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the idea was, and I think we see this playing out um, across the former Soviet states, is that eventually there'll be conflict. And guess who gets to come in as the hero then? Russia. Yeah. We'll be peacekeepers. And that's what happened in 2020. A war broke out between Armenia and Azerbaijan over this contested territory, which is where the project was located. Hmm. Azerbaijan retook land that Armenia had it had sort of annexed after the collapse of the Soviet Union because they said, look, this is historically Armenian. I mean, look, these churches were built in the 8th century. Mm-hmm. They're Armenian churches. We're not just going to allow these people who've been living here to go with no support. So... Azerbaijan retook all of that territory in 2020. And so the project and everybody that they were serving became refugees again. This is no, nothing new in the story of Armenia. I'm mean, sure it happens every time there's another shift. Yes, exactly. But that meant that the project really had to switch gears. So part of me going over there with this team was to figure out, OK, what are they doing now? And what are their hopes for the future now that they've relocated their office and they're sort of starting to redevelop their outreach work? And for the most part, for the past two years, what they've been doing is just trying to stay in touch with these refugees that they had a relationship with. I think they have a Rolodex of about 5,000 families, but they're scattered throughout Armenia now. Um, talking about scattering, mm-hmm. for example. And so they're able to you know, stay in contact with them and when they can get to the project, new project headquarters, they try to give them as much aid as they can to help them you know, furnish their homes, clothe their family, and if they have food, also to share that. And that's their immediate goal, uh, Project Agape. But their long-term goal is they want to do the same kind of uh, skill development that they did in the, the area of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, where they were based before, which is this mountainous region that was a contested territory. And so right now they're looking to fundraise to build a vocational training center. Mm-hmm. Right now they have like one shack that's about half the size of your office court where they have a bathroom and a nail salon studio. And one of the projects Hard to do
0: IT training in a nail salon studio.
1: No, yeah, that's not happening. but they have had you know, I think at least eight students go through the program for either and they, they have like a, a whole barber shop thing set up there too. So just one chair with a mirror and, and everything you need. But uh, the teacher there, Christina, has her certification in cosmetology and she's teaching people how to do nails and how to cut hair mm-hmm. and the project has been able to fund all of the equipment that somebody who is trying to build a new career would need in order to start a business yeah and, and at least eight people have actually done that and they've done that in Armenia or they've done that in Russia or other places that they've moved and gotten their certifications Gotten their equipment. The genius of that is, these are—I don't even want to call them industries, but
0: vocations that are needed everywhere. Yeah. So, if, even if you can't stay in that city, you got to move. Whatever, people still need to get their hair cut, their nails done, whatever. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And uh, <laughs> some of the older guys that I traveled with, who are pastors, who are looking at retirement, were we're making the argument: Hey, I I never got my nails done before, but now I'm thinking about it because. You know, my toenails are hard to reach, and <laughs> and uh, and you know I can go to the doctor and pay them to cut my nails, and it'll be tons of money that my insurance will have to pay for. Or I can just go get a pedicure, and they do a great job. Cleaning I didn't it up even now.
0: know that doctors would do that.
1: Yeah, I mean if you have if you wait long enough and you have certain medical issues uh-huh. that are related to your toenails or your foot hygiene hmm. then the doctor will go in and clip them for you I have a lot to learn as I age yeah but you can get that done for much more much more uh, uh, for a much more affordable price at a, at a nail salon anyway so manicure pedicure it's not just for women um, this can be a really good um, thing to uh, to look into for 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 people of all ages <clears throat> I didn't get my nails done while I was there, but I was glad to see that that's the kind of work that they're looking to do. They're also this this vocational center they're trying to build. They want to do cooking classes. They want to teach things like masonry, carpentry, IT skills. So they're established, but they're starting over. Yes. And so we we know
0: that, that they're trustworthy because they've got a track record. We know that they're still... Because of starting over, kind of in their infancy, and they have goals going forward that, that they want to aspire to be better. Mm-hmm. How could anyone help with this?
1: Well, there there's a there's a obviously financial support is needed. The budget for the project annually is about one hundred twenty thousand dollars, which is actually very small in the realm of international charity and foreign aid. Uh, if the what we like to say is that if we had 1,200 people or churches that were willing to give $100 a year, and even my small churches can do that, Mm -hmm. they would have their budget covered. Staff, uh, salaries, transportation costs, and maybe a little bit extra to help sort of these longer-term goals. That's one way. There are churches in Haywood County that do pack shoeboxes, and they use those at all times of the year to to give to kids as a little pick-me-up, but school supplies as well, that kind of thing. And uh, there are a number of trips that are offered um, each year that where either building trips or what I'm excited about and what I plan to, it looks like I'll be planning to lead some of these trips, are sort of pilgrimage experiences where we do look a little bit closer at that first thousand years of Christianity. And I think that for clergy or for lay leader, lay people who are interested in uh, learning about that history, it could be a really um, beneficial trip to get sort of the firsthand look at some of these ancient sites and to see how Christianity developed in a part of the world is very close to the Holy Land mm-hmm. uh, and how they've been able to maintain that faith over generations. So.
0: We're getting close on time, but let's shift to being a Constantian. Mm-hmm. What was the, the familial aspect? You got to reconnect with family. How did all of that stuff go?
1: Yeah, it's a little weird that, uh, so I've met my family in 2019 that lives over there. and Are we it, talking about like third cousins or what are we? Fourth cousins. Okay. Yeah, so we, we share a common great-great-grandparent. Who is from the region of Colicia, or Cilicia, where Paul was born. And at, you know, during the 1915 to 1925 genocide period, they became refugees and we did too, but the family kind of split up. So three brothers went to America at, and work in our Constantians, that's their last name, the, the sisters stayed and either went to Lebanon, Syria, or Armenia, and mm. married. And so I have relatives whose name is Gilgulian. So that's a tricky one. You try to say it without garbling. Gil-gulia. Gilgulian? Gilgulian, the, the word gil apparently means like rosy. So mm-hmm. they had like a rosy complexion. So they, their, their actual last name was something, something else, but they kept being called gils. So they their last name became Gilgulian. Interesting, know. they're fourth cousins, and I would have no chance of speaking with them, if it was like the older generation that spoke only Armenian and Russian. But after the fall of the Soviet Union, all of the Armenian schools started teaching English, and they do so pretty well. Like the my cousins who are my age, are fluent in English, uh, and uh, we we just we just clicked for some reason, and what's helpful is that Armenians are very family oriented, mm-hmm. you know, and I think this goes back to, uh, not being able to trust other larger forms of organization to have your best interests in mind, whether that's government or, or ecclesial. Uh, so they, they stick together as a family. So actually in Armenian, if I have a cousin who's my age, who's a man, I would call him Akpers, and that means brother. Mm-hmm. so so we're brothers it, it's a
0: sense of being closer than even genetically you are
1: yes Yeah, yeah. and we've been able to forge that so <clears throat> I extended my trip by a couple of days just so I could hang out with that Armenian family get to know them better um, and of course we ate a ton of food I never had a meal that I disliked uh, and you have to use your imagination on this but take, take the best of me- Mediterranean or Middle Eastern food and mash it with some influence from Russia and Persia and Europe. I'm picturing a Caesar salad with a potato in it. <laughs> Close, I would say. Think more along the lines of shish kebabs. I do like that. Um, yeah, they eat a lot of pork chops. They eat a lot of roasted lamb. A lot of roasted stuff. A lot of bread, uh, fresh vegetables, herbs, that kind of thing. Um, so I'd love, I'd love to take you with and. You can come see the the motherland.
0: Well, I, I, I'm not
1: opposed, <laughs> uh. but uh, but yeah, those family ties were, were helpful for me, and uh, yeah, I definitely feel like part of my heart and part of my home is in Armenia, even though you know I've never really spent that, a lot of time there. But, but you're working on that. I'm working you on know, that one one pilgrimage at a time. And I feel like it definitely is a. Um, a God thing, I'll say, that I happen to stumble into service as a Methodist pastor in a conference that's had a mission in Armenia for the past 30 years at a time when they're looking to find new people to support that mission, and and, uh, it's uh, something I couldn't be more excited about. It
0: gives credence to those that say there's no such thing as coincidence. Mm -hmm. I do want to close with this thought that you brought up, whether you meant to this way or not, but imagine a world where all of the children of God viewed each other as brothers and sisters in a way that cousins in Armenia view each other mm. as brothers and sisters. What if we were open to that closeness? Yeah. And instead of saying, well, we just go to the same church mm. or we just profess the same God, but that doesn't mean I have to like you. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what if we, we could put aside those things and say, well, I, I may not be able to trust all these larger institutions but I can trust the family of God well that would mean that we have to be trustworthy but it would be a ma- it, not magical it would be a beautiful thing yes uh, and so I think that's something though it's actually doable yeah and I think it's something we should aspire to Absolutely. by living trustworthy lives and being willing to be vulnerable and to trust others
1: yeah well so. brother Court thanks for asking me about my trip Hey, you're welcome thanks for telling us about it and for Pastor Potluck, I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. Peace.